Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. Ethiopia has been rocked by over a year of fighting between the government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front that has left thousands dead and millions displaced. Western media reports largely describe the conflict as perpetrated by the Ethiopian government, which is brutally repressing the minority Tigray ethnic group and committing egregious human rights abuses. But unsurprisingly, the story is much more complex. Ethiopia receives about $1 billion of U.S. aid annually. Yet as a result of the civil war, the Biden administration has taken measures to punish the country, establishing a sanctions regime, defense trade restrictions, and removal of the country from the African Growth and Opportunity Act. So what's really going on? Well, to get the information we aren't hearing and learn why we should care about the fate of Ethiopia, we're joined by journalists Rania Kalik and Eugene Perrier. They were recently on the ground in Ethiopia doing some excellent reporting, which you can watch at Breakthrough News. So the government of Ethiopia recently declared an end to the state of emergency that was in effect for quite a while. The conflict between the government and the TPLF, Tigray People's Liberation Front, officially began in November of 2020, but this fight has been mounting for decades. Rania, why don't we start by just having you explain the two sides? Well, okay, you've got obviously the government side led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who uh, came to power in the last few years after decades of really dictatorial rule by the Tigray People's Liberation Front or the TPLF. They were in charge of Ethiopia since the 90s. They were a very close ally of the United States and in many ways acted as kind of like the police of the U.S. in the Horn of Africa. They fought with the Eritreans in the 90s. They invaded Somalia in collaboration with the Bush administration over the so-called war on terror in the early 2000s. Um, And they behaved in a really brutal way. They tortured people. They committed massacres. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, human rights reports by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch about the TPLF and their history of really committing atrocities and behaving in a really anti-democratic manner. And so there was a change of power after lots of protests in Ethiopia, which Eugene can probably speak more about in a more detailed way than I can. Um, But ultimately in 2018, Abiy Ahmed came to power with a lot of support from those who had opposed the TPLF and a lot of really, I mean, support from the younger generation, especially people who had been living outside of the country uh, because they had been exiled by the TPLF, were inspired to come back and try to work to make their country better. And just real quick, I mean, Ethiopia is a massive country. This is the second largest country in Africa. It has a population of over 110 million, a lot of different uh, ethnicities that are part of these different ethnic-based states that are actually a result of something that the TPLF instituted when they took power in the 90s. And so basically the TPLF, like any group that's been in power for a very long time and is kind of ruling with an iron fist, was very angry that they lost power. And they launched in November of 2020 what can really only be described as a violent coup attempt. Uh, They attacked the northern command base of the Ethiopian 
the Ethiopian government, uh, and they mat they killed like what they killed what people say are about that like thousands of people. They did you know they committed ethnic cleansing in nearby villages in coordination with this attack, and um, the government reacted by fighting back. And the international community it was like almost immediately, and when I say international community, I mean the West, almost immediately, uh, along with the TPLF, started accusing the government of committing genocide in Tigray. Um, and I mean you. Eugene can probably give give more details than that, but essentially, you know, a lot of what we've been hearing about this this war in Ethiopia has been very one sided. It's been the government is bad and evil and committing genocide against the Tigray People's Liberation Front that is just fighting back as this kind of glorious rebel force. And to a lot of people who listen to your program, I'm sure that this is probably a very familiar narrative to maybe what they heard about with Syria or what they hear about with Ukraine, where it's and, and you know obviously the truth is much more complex than that. And once again, you have the US and its European allies really supporting an insurgent group that's trying to collapse a country just so that they can maintain power. I'm sure I'm sure Eugene probably has a lot he can add to that. Well, really quickly before um, and before we get into some of the history of the TPLF, you know, which was in power for almost 30 years and until somewhat recently. So we could actually look to what uh, the political character of that group is that's trying to take power from the current government. Um, but first, I, th- I, w- I wanted to clarify something because I think a-, a lot of the way that it's presented is this is like an ethnic sectarian conflict primarily. Um, but, you know, at-, at Breakthrough News, you guys have been doing some really great, important coverage that really lays all of these facts out. But one of the the main people that you've been interviewing is of Tigran descent, but who opposes the TPLF war. And so could one of you talk about that? Obviously, there's not like uniformity in the Tigray uh, community over support for the TPLF. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and you're referencing uh, Hermela Aragawi, who is a, you know, a journalist who worked in many places, most recently in local media uh, in L.A., but also now has her own uh, imprint, Mela Media, who really, in some ways, shocked the diaspora to when she came out in the midst of this and spoke out against the TPLF. And and I think the point you're making there is 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 correct, is that there is for sure no identification. And this is something a lot of people in the, the broader No More movement that's emerged among the diasporic populations to oppose this regime change effort by the TPLF have been pointing out that the TPLF is not the equivalent of the people of Tigray. And that in fact, the, the people uh, of Tigray are in and of themselves victims and have been victims, quite frankly, of the TPLF, not only in this current moment, but even during their rule, where despite the fact, you know, they were highly kleptocratic and super corrupt and in many ways favored people from their own region, you know, the vast majority of people were still living in very tough circumstances. So, you know, even in Tigray province, it wasn't as if like it was all the land of, of milk and honey, even though certainly they were giving probably, you know, preferential opportunities. And I think, you know, there's, there's a long history uh, of, of the reality of Ethiopia, I mean, Ethiopia as a country is really the, uh, the the child, if you will, of the combination of sort of feudal empire building and the imperialist scramble for Africa. It's a multinational country. There is a long, you know, thousand year history with, you know, various people at differing times having more or less power. And then, you know, a couple hundred years of, uh, you know, sort of an aristocratic elite coming primarily from one ethnic group. Uh, and then, you know, subsequently under the TPLF from another, uh, you know, sort of favoring or pushing sort of this ethnic politics. But there's also a history of 
Ethiopianness, if you will, and people coming together. I mean, in 2005, when the TPLF actually lost an election, it was only free election, quote unquote free election. I know that's such a loaded term, um, but the only sort of like legitimate election that was happening during their 30 years, they lost. They lost to a coalition called the CUD. And that was a coalition that was sort of, they call it citizenship politics, sort of based on uniting everyone around the idea of, of sort of, you know, whatever their differences may be, you know, being citizens of the nation of Ethiopia. So there's a lot of interplay between both the sort of, uh, as you know, it's traditionally talked about on the left, the national question, so-called ethnic struggles, and sort of the broader concept of what it means to be Ethiopian. And I think the way those things have interplayed over time has often led to these very one-sided narratives where people will speak about ethnic groups in Ethiopia as if it represents everyone, when I think the reality is often, you know, more complicated. And so I think obviously what we're seeing now in this current moment in the war too is more of a conversation about what will it mean and what will the people of Tigray actually do here now that the TPLF offensive seems to have failed, um, uh, seeing that failure. Will they, will, will there be a split there? Will they, you know, push them out of power? What exactly will happen? But I do think that it is important to note, as you were saying, Mike, that there is no equivalence between the people of Tigray and the TPLF, even though that is the politics they push. And they push their own supporters to basically say, you can't really be uh, a Tigrayan if you don't support the TPLF. So, you know, there's a lot of that kind of uh, sort of bullying reality in, in the culture that they created around their rule and around their politics. Yeah. And in that vein, you know, I think one of the reasons it's important for us to be talking about this, not just because it's an issue of U.S. empire in Africa and its its allies and its, and its foes, which are important to understand, but Ethiopians are our neighbors. There's a significant uh, Ethiopian community a diaspora here in the United States. You know, New York, D.C., Seattle all have large Ethiopian communities. And here in Los Angeles, I recently attended uh, a rally by the um, Ethiopian community along with Answer Coalition and others. Um, uh, that was huge. I mean, and I didn't think there is a huge Ethiopian community in L.A., but there were many thousands of Ethiopians out at this march. And there were similar real mass actions all across the country. But the question I had about that is, is, you know, when these actions happened, which were pretty significant in size and showed that there was a, a significant Ethiopian community in the U.S. that opposed uh, the, the TPLF and what was happening in the country, you know, I, I saw that there is a, a Twitter account that I really like normally that was that basically quote tweeted the answer action saying, these people are just there's no because there's the tweet was something to the effect of that answer put out that the U.S. backed TPLF is waging a war and these are people who are standing against these U.S. machinations. And, and the comment was, there's no evidence that the U.S. is supporting this side. This is pure conjecture and these leftists are taking a side in a sectarian conflict. Um, is there proof or is it known that the U.S. is supporting the TPLF or is adding fuel to the fire of this conflict? So I think with a conflict like this, it's kind of a question of at some point we'll know if there was more direct support, but because we don't have like evidence that the U.S. was sending weapons or something to the TPLF. So it depends what we mean by support. That said, the U.S. rhetoric has been only supportive and encouraging of TPLF offensives. I mean, they've constantly made comments only condemning one side, condemning the Ethiopian government for doing what any government would do when faced by an insurgency like this, which is to fight back. Um, and by doing that, they're taking a side. By going to the UN Security Council and trying to impose 
various forms of punishment on the Ethiopian government uh, because they're fighting back against an existential threat against this insurgency is taking aside. You know, uh, removing Ethiopia from the African Growth and Opportunity Act uh, is basically hurting the Ethiopian economy and essentially hurting workers by taking away, you know, their ability to have a livelihood is a form of warfare, of economic warfare, threatening Ethiopia with sanctions that, as we've seen around the world, from Iran to Syria to Venezuela to Cuba, it just completely devastates a country and impoverishes its people is taking sides. So from that aspect, from what the U.S. has been doing, maneuvering diplomatically uh, and all these various forms of punishment against the government, it's pretty clearly taking the side of the TPLF. And, you know, beyond that, we have seen, you know, from this like leaked conversation uh, that happened between senior, uh, former senior U.S. officials and former senior European diplomats and people who work at think tanks that are very closely aligned or even in contact with the U.S. government, actually speaking to TPLF officials on a Zoom call. That was leaked a few months ago, and they were on a video call openly advocating for the TPLF to have like a government ready to take over when they overthrow the government. So all of this points to the fact that the U.S. has indeed been supporting, and if not outright supporting, to be generous, has been at the very least you know, carrying out a sort of war alongside the TPLF against the Ethiopian government. Yeah, I think it's a good point just to add one real quick thing to that. I think the easiest way to see some of this too is when the U.S. put the, the some of the sanctions or issued a letter saying they were willing to issue sanctions. And in fact, in the letter, they said, you know, for PR reasons, they'd be willing to sanction the TPLF. Um, but I think what was notable to me is the TPLF was ecstatic over the moon. I mean, their public statements are like, this is great. This is exactly what we need. And so I think you can see that sort of both rhetorically for sure, but from a material perspective, from the mouths of the TPLF, the role of the United States has been to assist their conflict. Well, it's interesting, as Rania mentioned, that this force was in power for 30 years. Eugene, you were talking in a previous interview how um, it took on the mantle of this kind of supremacist rule, you know, perpetrating a lot of things that that was seen in previous decades or years, you know, one dominant ethnic group over another kind of thing. But, you know, once the new prime minister was elected, I would imagine that this force did not maintain like an arsenal of tanks and weapons and stuff. It's just interesting that you have like 200,000 fighters armed to the teeth with a lot of weaponry. Like where, how are they able to operate such a sizable arsenal? You know, I think that's a great question, Abby. And I think that that's one that a lot of people were asking in the early days of the conflict. And I think it, there's sort of two elements to it. The first element is, is that when the TPLF was ruling the country, they very skillfully, I mean, to say infiltrated the military, I guess is not right because they were sort of creating it, but the military they created, the ENDF, they gave themselves the monopoly of positions in the leadership and the officer corps and the special forces and the Northern Command, the base where uh, they launched this sort of inside attack, this kind of stab in the back attack uh, on other Ethiopian forces, 
that is actually the one of the most significant military bases in Ethiopia. And the reason, and it's in Tigray, and the reason it's there is because of the longtime aggression by the TPLF against uh, Eritrea. And so they were able to use the tensions, the tensions that they essentially were creating uh, between those two countries to locate the largest sort of military base that's there. So they already had inside of the existing military that was not purged after 2018 for you know other reasons we could talk about, they had sort of pole position position, if you will, and access to a lot of that equipment and serious access and, you know, good sort of geographical location of some of the most advanced weaponry and things of that nature. But on top of that, it seems just 100% certain. I mean, it, you know, obviously I wasn't there when they were doing it, that they've spent perhaps years. And I've heard different things about this from some people from at differing levels. There are, there are, there are those who believe they've been preparing for this since the 1990s, in fact, thinking they could potentially get pushed out of power. But however they did it by hook or by crook, it certainly seems that they have been stockpiling weapons, stockpiling fuel. I mean, you know, the, uh, the Eritrean defense forces, I saw a picture that they put out, um, you know, where they had discovered these just like, and also the Ethiopian Defense Forces put out a couple of pictures like this too. These just massive, like million gallon, I don't know, I'm just making that number up, but these massive gas <laughs> tanks that had been buried deep underground. So this is something they've been preparing for for some time. And when you look at the sort of some of the, the attacks they were doing with, um, you know, people who had been integrated in, I mean, seemingly almost like the TV show, The Americans, you know, that were like TPLF agents in these neighborhoods attacking Ethiopian forces from behind. Um, you know, these people had had obviously weapons in their house for years. So it really seems that both the sort of structural issue of how they structured the military, which gave them a significant um, sort of role in the existing military, in military training, tactics, weapons, so on and so forth. And just their overall strategy uh, was, it seems, to prepare for this sort of thing over a long period of time so that they could kind of pop up exactly like this in a way that no one would really expect. That's absolutely fascinating. Rania, can you elaborate a little bit more before we get into your on-the-ground investigations, which were absolutely harrowing, um, just about the U.S. relations with Ethiopia? Like, I know that you mentioned the sanctions and the removal of the country from the African Growth and Opportunity Act and retaliation for just fighting this insurgency force. Like, what did these sanctions do and what does the removal of Ethiopia from this act do? And like, what is, you know, wh where do you think the U.S. falls in all this? Like, why are they doing this? So, yeah, that's a great question. And real quick, I just just to add to something that Eugene was talking mm. about with the sort of preparation for any, you know, if they were ever pushed out of power or something else that the TPLF did that was quite smart, in fact, was uh, when they were in power, they put their people in positions at the UN. So like every country has people at the UN. Uh, and so that has been one of the problems for the Ethiopian government throughout this conflict is that many of the Ethiopians at the UN happen to also be pro-TPLF. And so that, you know, there was this big controversy over the government kicking out UN staff. And part of that was because they felt that the UN staff was people who were associated with the party that they're fighting and were being incredibly biased uh, in terms of the way they were reporting on the conflict and who they were condemning. So the TPLF did behave in a very strategic manner in terms of the sort of groundwork they laid uh, as like a contingency plan in case there ever came a day where they were pushed out of power. Uh, but to your question, you know, Ethiopia has not been hit with the kind of sanctions yet 
These have been mostly threats. And I think Mm -hmm. a few officials, uh, mostly Eritreans, have been sanctioned. Eritrea is already one of the most heavily sanctioned countries in Africa as it is. Um, That kind of served that, that, that served as a warning to the Ethiopians, like you're next. But the threat of sanctions isn't a huge deal because, you know, what, what do sanctions do to a country? Well, you know, the U.S. will say that when they sanction officials or they're targeted sanctions or they sanction various government industries, that it's in a coercive measure to get the government to behave in a better way, to stop violating human rights, whatever it may be. But what actually happened that, that you know, there's no, it's not like going to hurt the average person that, there's exemptions for humanitarian aid and medicines and food. But what happens in reality, as we've seen from, again, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, uh, Cuba, is when a country is placed under sanction in any way, it signals to the international banking system, which is based in the West, uh, not to do business with this country or to avoid doing business with this country, not just with the government, but with anything affiliated with the sanctioned country, because there are so many potential fines that you as a company, as a bank can face if you violate sanctions. And, you know, Treasury, US, sanctions from the U.S. Treasury Department are very complex and hard to navigate. And you really do need a team of lawyers in order to make sure you're not violating them. There's just it, it just requires so much resources and the risk is so big that what happens is a lot of banks and financial institutions and just regular businesses will just refrain from doing business with the country. They'll refrain from, for example, fixing hospital equipment, you know, sending selling spare parts. Like I say, I'm a German company, for example, and like there's certain spare parts that countries use for their power plants because it's a German-based, you know, built power plant in Syria. Well, Germany is, this is happening right now, is going to be reluctant to sell those spare parts to Syria uh, because if, you know, they violate the sanction or the German company violates the sanctions, they'll have to pay like billions of dollars in fees. Why would you risk that? And so imagine that scenario I just gave like playing out on the biggest scale possible, talking about dialysis machines, talking about all of the equipment you need in a hospital, you know, replacement parts for trucks so you can move things across a country, replacement parts for airplanes, um, you know, just agricultural production. You need big machinery in order to grow food. So like every industry in society it's like a domino effect is impacted by sanctions. And of course, we know that the real purpose of economic warfare like this is to make the population suffer so much and to shrink the economy, to cause inflation, to make people's wages go down so that they suffer, so that people will blame the government and ultimately overthrow it for the U.S. or soften it up for maybe some sort of regime change operation. Which is like literally never worked. Well, I mean, you could say it's never worked. I go back and forth on that because, yeah, it hasn't worked immediately. Like, it hasn't worked in Cuba, right? The U.S. has been doing this to Cuba for, like, 60 years. And I would actually credit Cuba's strong socialist system for the fact that it's been able to survive all this time. Um, But also, then you look at a country like Iraq. I mean, those 13 Mm -hmm. years that Iraq was, like, deprived of food and of fuel and its, like, population was destroyed throughout the 90s. It, in a way, it did soften Iraq up for an ultimate invasion in the early 2000s that did successfully collapse the state. So, I mean, 
it works and it doesn't work because obviously the U.S. didn't exactly get what it wanted in Iraq. And now the U.S. is practically ready to do another regime change operation in Iraq because now the government's so close to Iran. But that's another story. The point is, is that this is what the intention of U.S. sanctions are. And and you have to really imagine if if a if a system like this, if a punishment like this was applied to Ethiopia, which like, as I mentioned, is a country of over 110 million people in the Horn of Africa. If that country were to be destroyed, it would not just destroy Ethiopia. It would it would have ramifications, destructive ramifications throughout the entire Horn of Africa and even beyond. I mean, look at the destruction of much significantly smaller countries like Syria and Libya. Um, The destruction of those countries led to a refugee crisis that literally changed the politics of Europe and in many ways the world. It led to like the rise of ISIS. So just think about the consequences for a country like Ethiopia. And then you really see how it's not just a policy of extreme cruelty and bullying by the US, but it's actually like insane on a hemispherically destructive level. Very well said. You know, of course, any political issue in Africa, you know, has to be looked at in the context of what was done to that continent for hundreds of years uh, through colonialism, the slave trade, uh, all of the the underdevelopment that was wrought upon the continent. Um, so, you know, actually, our, our listeners, if you haven't seen it, there's a video on our YouTube with Eugene and Abby called uh, A Guide to U.S. Empire in Africa, which I think is really essential for people to get a good, a broad view primer on that story. But Eugene, I wanted to ask you, Ethiopia is a little bit of an interesting story. It's Africa's oldest independent state, one of only two African countries that was never colonized, that remained independent. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about Ethiopia's history and how it kind of leads into the, the conflict today? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting reality. I mean, in many ways, Ethiopia is a product of the scramble for Africa. I mean, I think the point that you made about the long history and the the role of colonialism, imperialism, and shaping so much of what's happened there uh, is, is equally as true. I mean, you have a situation in the sort of latter part of the 19th century where most of what we now call Ethiopia was essentially sort of a set of feudal principalities to some degree. There's more to it, but the long or the short of it is, is there was no sort of like, quote unquote, Ethiopia as we know it today. And in the context of some subsets of, you know, a limited element of the feudal elites of, of, you know, one part uh, of what we now know as Ethiopia, feeling the pressure of what was happening with the Italians, with the French, with the British coming from all sides, you know, to some degree also the the, the so-called modest who were, um, you know, resisting the British in what is now Sudan, there was a push to try to consolidate their sort of feudal imperial holding in order to make sure that they were not overrun by this same onslaught that was overrunning governments uh, you know, in states all across Africa at that time and subjecting them to various forms of colonialism. So Ethiopia is really a product of that process. It's a product of the, and this is something that we've seen all across all across Africa, quite frankly, in the context of this period, of the interruption of the natural development of African nations and states. I mean, obviously, this really started with the slave trade, um, both to the West African slave trade, but also the, you know, the quote unquote Arab slave trade that affected East Africa and the impact that that had demographically and economically and, you know, what that did to 
you know, create the kinds of divisions that the Western powers were able to exploit. And then subsequently, you know, were able to exploit the issue of so-called slavery in Africa in order to, uh, you know, come up with this, this general proposal. But anyway, long story short, that is essentially the history of, of modern Ethiopia and Ethiopia as a concept as we know it is the history of, you know, a group of people uh, and, and this is not to absolve them of many of the things that were certainly done during the process of this sort of feudal state formation that, you know, certainly don't have that much to recommend them. But nevertheless, it was still a product of the fact uh, that people wanted to remain some have some level of independence and self-determining reality, even if it was for, you know, their own elites vis-a-vis -vis Western imperialism and the borders of Ethiopia, the borders of Eritrea, the borders of Somalia, the borders of Sudan uh, are essentially determined by the end result of that conflict, by the sort of nation. There was a number of different conflicts happening toward the end of the 1800s, the early 1900s, and the lines that were drawn was essentially uh, that, it, you know, created the country's that I just mentioned that we know today are the lines that were drawn in the context of uh, this conflict with imperialism and essentially the point where imperialism was able to go no further and thus had to make a deal um, with, you know, Emperor Menelik or, or some of the other individuals. And, you know, that is essentially what gave us uh, many of the sort of current borders that we have in the region. The TPLF was was governing, you know, for 30 years straight, as you mentioned, just really uh, horrific brutality that was uh, deployed by this group. In 2018, there was a democratic election where Dr. Abiy Ahmed was elected as the new prime minister. Um, a lot of things were done under his tenure. I mean, I guess a lot of reforms, the release of political prisoners, making peace with Eritrea. And the TPLF was forced to retreat. As you mentioned, then there was this attack in 2020. I'm sure a lot happened in between that period to 2020. But um, just to sum it up, you know, and then there was this brutal siege where you saw huge swaths of territory under siege from the TPLF as they tried to advance further and further. You guys went to Ethiopia. Um, you were on the ground just days after the government actually took back power in one of these territories. You did several incredible reports on the ground interviewing people about their personal experiences. Rania, let's let's go to you. I mean, just talk about what you uncovered specifically the horrific atrocities being committed against the people there that the mass media just will not talk about. Yeah, so as the media has been focused obsessively on Tigray, which, you know, there hasn't really been a war in Tigray since the government announced a unilateral ceasefire, I believe last June, June 2021. Um, and the TPLF response to that ceasefire was to launch several violent offensives into the neighboring states of Afar and Amhara. And they were attempting to make their way to the capital, Addis Ababa. Um, and they essentially were just going from town to town uh, on the way and taking it over. And, you know, we, we visited a lot of the, uh, we visited many towns in Amhara uh, that the TPLF had you know, in the past few months or even in some cases, weeks or days had just been pushed out of by federal government forces along with local uh, local fighters. And what we found was from one town to the next that had been taken over by the TPLF, they had just left a trail of destruction. And it just felt like we were looking at one crime scene after another. Um, and I'll give you some examples. I mean, we talked to so many people 
who told the same stories about, you know, having the TPLF loot their homes or their businesses or kill their relatives or having survived attempted TPLF killings or executions, um, showing people showing us mass graves. Uh, and in particular, I mean, one report that we had come out was, I think, one of the harder ones to produce because we basically interviewed women who had stories of having been gang raped by the TPLF, many cases, you know, and many, many of them in front of their children um, at gunpoint or like at machete point. Um, and, you know, while the, and in the midst of this horrible, horrible crime, they were being told by the fighters who were doing it, you know, that they were doing it because you're like Amhara, you're donkeys, you, you know, this is revenge for what you've done to our people, you're Abi Ahmed's slave. Um, they were being told these kinds of things. Um, in one case in particular, uh, they had, there's a place, a town called Lalibela. Eugene produced an excellent report on what we witnessed there. And it's this, um, Lalibela is home to, uh, UNESCO world heritage site. It has these churches that were built into the mountains, uh, into the mountains, like hundreds of years ago. And it's incredible. It's beautiful. People make pilgrimages to this place, people from all over the world, the local economy is very dependent on on tourism to these churches, and so the TPLF took over Lalibela. And on top of the typical stuff that we heard, they, you know, they they killed people, they um, destroyed and looted things. You know, they had actually destroyed. I mean, completely destroyed the airport in Lalibela, and by doing this, they really like. They, they they destroyed the town's economy because this town is just completely dependent on the tourism that comes in, and now people can't fly in anymore. On top of this, they also, every time we went to, it was so bizarre, every time we went to, the TPLF had cut the electricity, so there was no electricity in these places. Um, they had cut the communication, so it was very difficult to communicate with the outside when you were in these places. And people were really scared because especially in towns that the TPLF had just push, been pushed out of because there was a fear that they could come back and carry out ambushes. I mean, I'll be honest, like even I was, you know, Eugene remembers, I was a little frightened uh, in one of the places that we stayed because I was afraid they were going to come back, especially after all the horrible stories we had heard. Yeah, I mean, even while you were sitting there, there was a gunfire like pretty nearby yeah. and it was just like, holy yeah. fuck, like, are they back or what? Like, is really... And by the sound of the, I mean, that was close gunfire. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah, like, yeah. like within a mile of you. You know. Yeah, Eugene. Eugene was like, Eugene was like super calm, and I was like, uh, <laughs> Eugene was totally chill about it. He can like tell you what kind of gun was probably being fired, and I just like don't really know weapons. And you know, well, there was also were, like we <laughs> you were you were close enough for errant rounds to be landing where you yes. were. So right, and I'll, I'll just add one thing. You know, like what was so crazy about all of this is, you know, like I'll say, like I, I you know, I've been to Syria and Iraq, and I've spoken to victims of ISIS and other various Salafi jihadist groups. But obviously, I've also, you know, reported uh, on what Yazidis have gone through, and I've spoken to them. So I've heard atrocious stories of violence against women in war. Uh, that didn't make it any easier, but it re actually reminded me a lot of of the stories I heard by people who were captured by ISIS, Yazidi people who were captured by ISIS. But what struck me as it actually made me angry is the fact that. All this time, every mainstream media outlet is just going on and on and on about Tigray, over and over, Tigray this, Tigray that. What's the government doing in Tigray? And I'm not trying to downplay or dismiss any atrocities that were committed against people in Tigray by whatever sides. All I'm saying is we spoke to so many people who have been completely ignored 
ignored by the international, particularly Western media, because the atrocities committed against them does not go, it does not and reinforce the narrative that the sort of international regime change operation against Ethiopia is saying. So their suffering literally does not matter to the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, who've not only been obsessively focusing on what's happening in Tigray, but have also been promoting lies. Yeah, it's not useful. I mean, their suffering is not useful at all. So it's completely ignored. These stories, I mean, I can't stress enough, like how traumatic it is. I mean, to to hear what these women went through, the cruelty, the barbarism of their stories. It's just it's it's hard to wrap your mind around. And I mean, you just have to see it for yourself to really understand how grotesque it is that these people can be ignored so much. Yeah, you know, I think that the use of systematic mass rape by TPLF forces as a as an obvious tactic, as a coordinated tactic, really says everything you need to know about the political character of the TPLF. Like any political organization that employs rape as a weapon uh, has, you know, can't have any redeeming qualities. Uh, and and I, I think that's clear and obviously omitted from the mainstream media's coverage of uh, the TPLF, um, which a pretty big omission, I would say. Um, but the the employment of violence, obviously, pretty extensive, too. You know, in the beginning, when you mentioned that all of this, this war started with an offensive by the TPLF against government, a uh, government base, uh, of course, a lot of civilian casualties there, too. I mean, the estimates of the the casualties there are like something like 6,000 people is something I saw. I mean, I know we can't get real numbers, but in the thousands, I mean, I think when people think about war, like numbers just kind of become like, oh yeah, a lot of people die in war, but thousands of people in a single offensive is like pretty massive and major Mm -hmm. and catastrophic. Like 5,000, not even 5,000 US soldiers died in the Iraq war, which was 10 years and was really brutal. A lot of soldiers were dying. Um, you know, there's it's like an extremely heavy loss of life. I mean, there is no battle in Iraq or Afghanistan or mass bombing in Iraq or Afghanistan where thousands of people died in a single attack. So it's it. I think that when I heard that, I was kind of shocked by how vicious the fighting must have been. Um, and so clearly you have the widespread use of uh, tactics like rape uh, and executions and mass killing by the TPLF. Um, but of course, you know, as you mentioned, Rania, there also is killing by the government. You know, actually, a, a month or two before the demonstrations that, that I attended by the Ethiopians against the TPLF, here in Hollywood, there is a march of maybe 500 people um, who are pro TPLF. And when we saw this march, all of the placards said, uh, Ethiopia is using drones from the United Arab Emirates and killing civilians. And that was like the slogan is like, stop killing civilians with drones from these, uh, you know, police state monarchies in in the Middle East. Eugene, you know, uh, how do you navigate that? Because I think that would make it very easy for people to see that, say, okay, well, there's these TPLF atrocities, but then you have the government that's aligned with the UAE that is killing civilians also by use of drone. Um, and so it's easy for people to just say, well, clearly both sides are bad. Uh, clearly this is just some kind of, uh, struggle that we don't understand. And, you know, it's, it's not something that we should take a a position on. 
Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point, and it's sort of a complex issue in some ways. I mean, you know, sort of both sides are kind of more or less accusing each other of almost the exact same thing, minus the drones, which, you know, only the Ethiopian government has the ability to use. So I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of things that, you know, are worth untangling there, because just like in many conflicts, when we talk about any individual incident, whether it be a massacre or whatever it is, there are, you know, certain questions about certain things. And I think there are certain things that, you know, it seems like perhaps could have been embellished or or put in different contexts. But obviously, there's a lot of violence going on. So to me, there is really one factor in all of this that I think is extraordinarily relevant. Um, well, two factors that are extraordinarily relevant. I mean, you know, one factor that's relevant in any sort of conflict like this, and, you know, obviously major conflicts tend to be extraordinarily violent in many different ways, is, well, you know, who started it and what's it for? And, you know, to some degree, that does sort of put the onus for everything that happens, you know, more on those who created the situation by which it happens, and that's the TPLF. But uh, as Rania said, that's not to excuse anything. And so from my point of view, you know, one of the more important aspects of the whole conflict to me is the fact that the TPLF takes zero accountability for anything. And no, ma no matter what they are accused of, no matter how well documented it is, it's just a lie. It's false. It's a false flag. It's being created by Ethiopia. They've done this to blame it on us and so on and so forth. Now, certainly the Ethiopian government has denied that they've done certain things, but it is worth knowing that the only real investigation into you know anything that's happened so far is an investigation by the UN Human Rights Council and the Ethiopian Human Rights Council. Now, some in Ethiopia, especially many in Eritrea, take issue with some of what's in that report. But nevertheless, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, which is a government entity engaged with the United Nations, investigated many of the things that have been laid out by um, you know, many of these groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch reported on it, corroborated some of it, questioned other elements of it, declared that there was no to grade genocide, but that there are a number of things happening. But you know, that's a government entity. And then there is a multi-agency task force that the government set up, you know, really at sort of the behest of the international community to look into things. You know, I believe at least 30 people have already been tried. Um, I believe some of them actually for sexual assault in the context of war. Uh, and, you know, some people can say it's a fig leaf, it is what it is, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's deeply notable that amongst all of the different claims, there's only one side that is willing to say, yeah, we probably haven't done everything right. Some people definitely have done things that we consider crimes. We absolutely are going to try people. We're investigating the things that are happening. We're cooperating with international organizations like the United Nations to look into it. Um, and we want the perpetrators to be held responsible. Now, you know, people can say again, that it's a fig leaf, that they're not holding everyone responsible, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want to say blah, blah, blah. It's a very serious issue. But when you look at that compared to the TPLF that says every single thing that is ever Ever, they're ever accused of is fake. I think that it does raise some uh, points about sort of the broader piece, like I said, of, of who created this, who created the conflict, what is really the motivation of the TPLF, which, by the way, has done anything that they have accused the Ethiopian government of doing. They obviously have done themselves over their 30 year rule and were widely known for these sorts of, of brutal policies over, over those 30 years. So, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's insanely hypocritical for them to be trying to make an issue out of this now. So anyway, long story short, I mean, I think that obviously 
this is what's so terrible about war is the loss of innocent life for really no reason at all. This war should not be fought. Um, the TPLF never should have done this. They've created a context in which many terrible things are happening, but only one side has even been willing to admit that there is you know, some wrongdoing and some gray area that does need to be investigated and that people do need to be held accountable if they commit abuses against civilians. And I think that in and of itself says something about the, the two sides, the two belligerents in the conflict. I, I want to add something to, to what Eugene's saying, which is such an important point about accountability. But even beyond that, I mean, this is not to excuse what happens in a war, but we also have to understand that once war starts, atrocities will be committed. Like there is no pure fighting force out there where nobody's committing an atrocity throughout a war. Like it just, it doesn't happen. War is violent and civilians end up getting killed and harmed in all kinds of terrible ways. So our the, the point should be to end a war. You, you don't want to start it in the first place, but you know, people like us who don't want to see war, right? Like our, we want to see a de-escalation of violence. And throughout this conflict, the actor that has been escalating over and over again, we even when they've been handed the opportunity to end this war has been the TPLF. And it's repeatedly happened. And I think a big turning point for a lot of people, and you, you guys mentioned Hermela earlier. I mean, one of the turning points in this war for her was when the government declared a unilateral ceasefire over the summer. And rather than take that and go with it to end the war or at least de-escalate the violence, even if temporarily, the TPLF, which had been going on and on about how, you know, they can't get aid in and all the fighting and all the death, decided to use that as an opportunity to launch more offensives. So we have to look at why is this war happening? Who is the party that is continuing to escalate this war? And over and over, it has been the TPLF. And you also have to look at, like, why is the corporate media cartoonishly one-sided? Why is there this staunch one-sided media narrative? And who is it benefiting? And this is one of those conflicts that's being told in such an outrageously, like, falsified way by the Western media. I mean, we all know how this goes, whether it's Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, the list goes on and on. But according to outlets like the Washington Post, the Ethiopian government is at fault for the one-sided narrative. Right. So the Washington Post says, quote, by blocking communications and access to Tigray, the government helped create the conditions where disinformation and misinformation can thrive. Rania, it's just incredible because similarly to your reporting in Syria, where rebels controlled huge, you know, swaths of territory and journalists were literally just reporting what they were being told by said rebels. You see similar types of reporting being done here from these strongholds Absolutely. where fighters testimony is taken at complete face value yet victims living there rarely had the platforms to voice their experiences yeah and we see this like you mentioned you mentioned venezuela we see you mentioned syria like this is an ongoing problem when it comes to mainstream corporate media outlets that you know, just take the line of the U.S. State Department. And we see we see that with the New York Times. And I think, you know, this is a product of going into a country, parachuting into a country, I should say, uh, with already with like an agenda and letting in the case of the New York Times. I mean, I, you know, it was pretty obvious from people we've spoken to and what's happened with other reporters is a lot of these Western reporters were going into Tigray and they were um, setting up 
all of their interviews with like a TPLF fixer, like a pro TPLF fixer. And the TPLF did have a network of fixers and a network of PR people to shape media coverage. And this is one of the most effective ways to do that is to have people who basically are in charge of the story that you see and hear. And so that's a lot of what you saw from outlets like the New York Times is stories that were being shaped by their TPLF fixtures on the ground. And it reminded me so much of like what you would see in Syria where people would embed with the rebels, not realizing, I mean, it's fine actually like to embed with one side or another in a war, but you have to know that you're just getting one side. But in this case, you have these reporters that will just like take on the narrative and the views and the passion especially these like white Western reporters and the passions of the people they're embedding themselves in with, whether we're talking about rebels in Syria or, you know, the TPLF in, in Ethiopia and they get super passionate about it and they come back and it's almost like they're living out some weird dream of like fighting in a war without actually fighting in it by like living through, like, you know, living through these rebels on the ground that they've glorified and romanticized. And I mean, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's surprising that you often see, and this is, this is me just like babbling on about psychology. I might not quite understand on a deep scientific level, but I suspect, I suspect that there is a sort of like machismo that goes into this, especially with some of these like, these like male reporters who like get, you know, they're not fighters themselves, but they can embed with fighters and then feel really strong and then take on their views. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's just to even throw that in there, I mean, I think the point you're making is so key. I mean, when you look at the nature of these reports, I mean, sort of the evidentiary chain is very similar, right? And I think as you pointed out very well, Abby, anything the TPLF says, people say that it's 100% true. Anything that comes out from the other side of a TPLF atrocity, if it is ever reported, it's always reported as, you know, we heard this, this has been alleged, the government has said, people told us or whatever, as if it isn't, when the actual sort of evidentiary basis and proof is pretty much the same, uh, you know, on many different levels. And quite frankly, nine times out of 10, there's less evidence from the point of view of the Tigrayan side. But, and again, that's why I wanted to make the point about, uh, you know, what the Ethiopian government has said they're doing and what it says about the TPLF, because whether you like the government or whether you hate the government, they've obviously established structures by which if you have strong evidence, that individuals, units, or whatever have committed atrocities, you can certainly report that, and then there's actually a mechanism to hold them accountable. So someone can then say, you know, six months from now, well, hey, someone came up with this report, we had all these things, it had this level of credibility, they brought this to you, you said you're looking into it, who was arrested, who was tried, who was investigated, what was the results of that, and so on and so forth. And with the TPLF, it's just a total black hole. And I think, you know, obviously, their forces have committed some atrocities, and the fact that they were refuse to forget even admit it, but to set up any sort of mechanism of accountability anywhere to where anyone can hold them accountable, I think is an important part of this. And so I think people should, if they feel they want to say the Ethiopian government has done something wrong, speak out about it, talk about it, and, and you know, put the facts out there so that then subsequently down the line, you know, people can be held accountable for things that should not have been done. But the very fact that one side is willing to very publicly put out some sort of mechanism by which they can be measured objectively by the international community, whether or not they're serious about um, dealing with war crimes, and the other is just like, oh, there are no war crimes. <laughs> the greatest people there ever are, I think speaks to who the TPLF really is and the true realities of the conflict. Yeah, Eugene, actually, what is like the, how would you characterize the the politics of the, the government in Ethiopia. I mean, I, I and, you know, like, is is this guy a, a progressive? Like, what is the how would you describe it? 
Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a controversial question. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, Abiy Ahmed, just to give a little history, is someone who was actually a part of the EPDRF, um, which was the uh, uh, sort of ruling coalition of the, the TPLF that they put in power. It's the only politics in the country from 91 to, to 2018. He is from the Oromo ethnic group, which is the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. And so he came to power in 2018. He's actually written a book uh, about his philosophy. And, you know, I think it's, it, I'll, I'll, I'll put a few things in order. I mean, it's sort of like a third way capitalist kind of thing in the context of economics and where there's sort of a mix of kind of liberal free market ideology, but also, you know, some uh, you know, there's there's a, an emphasis on national development, on food sovereignty and other elements that I think some people would say he's a neoliberal or whatever. But I think that's a far too simplistic way of reading it. But I do think that certainly you're pursuing kind of like a third way ish capital mentality of trying to find a way to give the uh, a significant role for the market of which there was basically none in Ethiopia for the past 40 years um, other than the like kleptocratic TPLF businesses. But to call that a market rather than just a, a money grab, I don't really know if, if that's right. But nevertheless, um, you know, that sort of promoting that sort of piece and opening up different sectors to, you know, have uh, different companies be able to compete with the state companies and bringing people in, although there's a lot to say, be say about that. I mean, on the sort of cultural political front, he has tried to put forward a new philosophy of, of, of what it means to have unity and diversity, to be able to unite as Ethiopians, but not as, you know, I think he and many would say in the past, um, try to paper over the complicated history um, that that has existed in the country and to try to provide some space for, uh, you know, those conversations to happen. So, I mean, I think in sort of the the paragon of world leaders, he would probably be considered sort of like a centrist in many ways, you know, maybe in certain contexts, kind of like a centrist liberal, if you will. Uh, but it's kind of it's more it's a little bit more complicated in the Ethiopian context because of the the sort of historical evolution of the politics. But I definitely, you know, don't think he's any sort of like radical revolutionary socialist type individual. But he is someone who, when he became when you look at the history and the politics of the Oromo sort of protest movement, that really was the one of the key factors in pushing the TPLF out of power and it sparked big protest movements in Amhara and other places as well that contributed to that. You know, it was on the one hand about ethnic marginalization, but it had a deep sort of class content to it where the young youth were out protesting, feeling that because of who they were, they were facing structural unemployment, they were facing a lack of economic opportunity, they were getting less in terms of the, the sort of income inequality and the proceeds that were distributed. When Abiy Ahmed was appointed the head of the Aroma Regional Authority, you know, this was one of the main things that he was saying he was going to promote. So there's sort of a, a, a national development uh, uh, politics that is is also a big part of of where he's coming from, and I think one of the big issues that has brought him into you know difference with the United States is the fact that it, it's very much focused on how to raise the floor of living standards of Ethiopian people. Now, certainly using many different market methods, but if you just think about how that plays out, I mean, a lot of people, for instance, have pointed out this issue of the you know quote unquote privatization of the, the the telephone telecom industry, which is not quite a privatization. It's just an opening up of of new markets and you know having different people compete with uh, the the state operator Ethio Telecom. But when you look at how it's played out, the first 
contract that was went out to another country, went to Safaricom, which is a Kenyan company owned by a South African company that works closely with Huawei on technology. And the other company that was vying for the third license is MTN, which is a South African company um, that is also very close with Huawei. So, you know, the privatization uh, issue that has become, you know, a big canard actually does not benefit the United States. Even though it's a capitalist measure, it is simple, it's essentially delivers the one of the largest emerging markets for telecommunications equipment, data, and all these other things to Chinese, uh, to African companies with Chinese partnerships. So even in the context of sort of developing a more sort of marketized economic situation in Ethiopia, you know, it's still taking on some sort of elements of, of counter hegemonic reality. You know, they're making, uh, they're building these, this massive network of cooperative farms with hundreds of thousands of farmers in it, a million people, not quite neoliberal, um, but it's also sort of cooperative farms embedded in the idea of market agriculture and export agriculture. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, one of those things that I think everyone is is looking to kind of characterize him for their own political purposes. I think if I had to do it the most, I would say it's kind of like a third wayish kind of politics um, that we've seen in, in many parts of the world over the past 30 or so years, trying to kind of balance the realities of, uh, you know, market economics and, you know, the, the extreme negative externalities that come alongside that. Right. You know, I, I think that if those contracts for the telecommunications privatization went to AT&T and Verizon instead of African companies, uh, the U.S. government probably wouldn't have a single bad word to say about the conduct of the Ethiopian government in this conflict. That's just the way U.S. politics work. Uh, um, and the, as you mentioned, Ethiopia's the government's relationship with China and uh, using China for development is probably a, a big reason why the U.S. does have a lot of bad things to say about the government. Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, it, it and it and it speaks to so such an important reality of of U.S. imperialism is that you know you don't actually have to be some radical revolutionary to be targeted by U.S. imperialism. <laughs> you just have to be someone who wants to do something outside of the hegemonic reality of what America wants to do. And most of the, I see this all the time where people are sort of saying, "Oh, Abiy Ahmed really is a perfect partner for U.S. imperialism." Well, if he's a perfect partner, why are they backing a regime change effort against him? And I think when you look at the context of his politics, there's not a direct equal sign between his policies and things that are good for U.S. imperialism on a hegemonic perspective. Now, there are things that he's doing that are good for capitalist in Ethiopia that might not be as good for workers. There are certainly things that he's doing to try to, you know, link the uh, Ethiopian economy with the U.S. markets in order to create sort of a economic dynamism in the country. And, you know, that's what a Goa is really all about. And certainly that can also be questioned, too. These U.S. free trade deals are, you know, primarily traps for African countries. Um, but nevertheless, when you look at the actual, like, politics of what's happening right now, the fact that Ethiopia is willing to, for instance, try to unite the Horn of Africa to a greater degree, sign a historic peace deal with Eritrea, you know, look towards how to build more food sovereignty, how to use clean energy to develop the country, how to bring in investment from, you know, all sorts of places, but for, you know, primarily the benefit of injecting some level of, of dynamism into the Ethiopian economy, you know, I think similar to Iran. I mean, Hassan Rouhani, it was basically a neoliberal when you look at the actual policies he was promoting when he ran for president, when he was president of Iran, that didn't stop, you know, the United States government from launching, you know, what's like a homicidal sanctions isolation campaign against Iran. I mean, we see this on a regular basis. We see it in Ethiopia. And I think it's something that we have to recognize more and more in our current reality, because more and more in the 21st century, I think, as the just unbelievable inequalities 
of imperialism on the global stage continue. And as the U.S. and Europe seek to keep their stranglehold, you know, in the face of planetary destruction, I think even some people who are basically U.S. clients in many different countries, I think we're seeing this in different places, are going to want a bigger role a higher seat at the table. They're going to want more influence and impact on the broader decisions that are being made by the West, which they don't want to allow. And I think it's going to lead to more conflicts and more wars and more sanctions and more things where those who are being targeted, you know, they have their own contradictions, many contradictions. And somewhere, um, you know, there are things that I certainly would speak against, but I think we're going to see more and more. And you can see this when you look at the friends of the UN charter group started by Venezuela and China, that there is a, a growing and very diverse subset of countries that are pushing back against unipolar imperialism for more of a multipolar world, for more national independence, sovereignty, and choice. And I think broadly, that's a good thing, even if many of those governments bring uh, their own contradictions along with them. Right. And it's not up to us to have to explain away those contradictions. It's just up to us as anti-imperialists, as babies and children of the empire to just try to staunchly oppose intervention, right, and interference and subversion in countries to prevent their self-determination. I know that, Rania, you talked about your reports, of course. Uh, it just reminds me, I mean, speaking just from the perspective of, you know, going, having been in Venezuela and seeing the one-sided media narrative about the opposition and how, you know, they're driven be- because they're starving, because they're in desperate need of medical supplies. But then when you really look on the ground at the targets of these attacks. It was medical clinics. It was government buildings. It was social services. It was really cutting to the heart of the socialist government and trying to undermine um, its function. You know, you you and Eugene went to medical clinics. You went to the airport in La Libella, this huge tourist destination that, as you mentioned, this World Heritage Site, it's a very beautiful place. And it was just ransacked completely destroyed. It's just so interesting how it's just such a similar script that's followed where infrastructure and social services are destroyed by these forces. And then the media narrative that uh, arises from it is like, oh, you know, there's a genocide going. I mean, that's a pretty loaded fucking term to throw around. And it really makes it uh, hard to even know what the hell is going on. At the same time, let the aid in, right? Let the aid in. Why won't they take the aid? And then you hear about Eritrea. I mean, my entire life, I literally like just believed, I mean, it's just I never knew anything about it. And I always just heard that it was like a, just a total police state military dictatorship. And it just like totally blacked out. And like, I never knew anything about it. And I just completely just took that at face value, oddly enough. Um, and so it was interesting that you guys chose to go there and how this is all intertwined with the conflict as well, where you hear constantly this this Eritrean influence right in in Ethiopia the troop presence that was blamed a lot for exacerbating the atrocities and fueling the conflict um what did you uncover Rania so I mean I actually think that I can relate very much to what you just said because same here I mean I didn't know anything about Eritrea in the past and you know all I'd ever heard from it is that people are fleeing because it's just so awful there and then if you actually go to YouTube and you look up Eritrea one of the first videos if not the first video that comes up is a vice uh, you can see where this is going. It's a vice like <laughs> mini doc. I, it's called something like Eritrea, the North Korea of Africa, which, you know, as Eugene has said before, is actually like, in many cases, an insult to North Korea, <laughs> um, to like be using it as like something that's so negative, but also just, I mean, the idea of trying to create this, like, 
this, this, because you know, everyone looks at North Korea as something because it's so heavily propagandized against as just the worst place in the world. So Eritrea is another worst place in the world. And so going there was really interesting. And you mentioned, before I get to that, actually, you mentioned that it's intertwined with the conflict in Ethiopia. And we know one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that there's all this animosity towards Abiy Ahmed is because he made peace with Eritrea, which neighbors Ethiopia, and which historically has been uh, at war with Ethiopia because under the TPLF leadership, uh, there was horrible atrocities and land theft essentially committed against Eritreans by the TPLF. Uh, that goes back to a history where the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, had been allied at one point with the TPLF. Uh, against the Derg government in, in in Ethiopia, and then as soon as you know they accomplished their goals, and there was the fall of that government, the TPLF took a very different uh, route of governing than the Eritreans did, and there was a split. And then, of course, uh, the TPLF was used to really police. Uh, Eritrea and help isolate it alongside the United States. But going there was a really interesting experience because, you know, we hear of this horrible place where everyone's just so miserable. And having having been in Ethiopia, where we saw like really extreme levels of poverty, um, you know, we I think we we visited a couple places where there had been atrocities committed by the TPLF, where like there was no you know paved road and people like didn't have shoes and they lived like a really hard farming life. So Ethiopia has historically you know been very despite what people say about the TPLF, very, very capitalistic in its development. And you can see that with just how developed the city, the main city is versus like the outskirts and just the levels of inequality where there's all these millions of people without electricity and without very much infrastructure versus like really nice, you know, almost like skyscrapers in the main city. And then to go to Eritrea where they have some really interesting development policies, there's definitely like not as much extremes. Uh, in fact, you kind of see the outskirts, you know, there's more investment from the state in the countryside and in rural farming, almost more than there is in the city in many cases. And also like people are really nice and warm and happy and um, educated and proud of, you know, what they consider to be like their own revolution. You know, they have a history of like freedom fighters, um, that, that, you know, founded the current government as it is. And they have a really vibrant, like level of debate for how to develop the country. And they have a really interesting development model, which has a lot of socialist attributes. Um, and you know, they're, they have a kind of like understanding of imperialism and what it means. And they think about things in a very anti-imperialist framework. They're very into the idea of being self-sufficient and not dependent on like humanitarian aid or the UN or the World Bank or the IMF, considering the role those various institutions have played in like neo-colonialism and keeping countries subjugated. Uh, and moreover, like these, these are people who it makes you even angrier because they've been so heavily demonized and like they're people just like us, like living their lives, wanting the best for themselves in their country. And so it was really cool to be able to actually interact and talk with people in Eritrea um, to see that they actually like you, you start to recognize that the reason they're so demonized is because they are presenting an alternative model to the oligarchic, neocolonialist, capitalistic, 
neoliberalism that has destroyed the rest of Africa. And that's why I think Eritrea is such a huge threat to the US, the international like global order, if you will, because Africa it continues to be exploited and you know resources continue to be stolen and it continues to face extreme levels of underdevelopment so that these powers in the global north can literally like live off of the blood and sweat and resources of Africa while people there are just impoverished. So that was my take from it. I, I mean, and I'm sure Eugene has like way more to add to that. Yeah, go ahead, Eugene. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's a good summary. I mean, I think when you look at the reality of, and you can track this in WikiLeaks if you really want, if you look at the reality of U.S. policy towards Eritrea, I mean, it really is more or less based in the fact that they will not get in line on a number of crucial issues for the U.S. to control the world. I'm certainly, you know, one major one, and really when the U.S. made the biggest push against them was when they were opposing the U.S. TPLF campaign to invade, destabilize, and divide Somalia. Um, and they became aggressively, aggressively demonized by the United States, who in league with a number of other people pushed UN Security Section, uh, Council sanctions on them uh, over that. But you also can see it very clearly, the fact that they are willing or unwilling to participate in the US-led campaign to isolate and demonize Iran, that they were sanctioned once for trading with North Korea. Uh, you see in multiple different cables and communications that the US is upset that they're talking to uh, the Assad government in Syria, uh, also that they're working with Cuba, with Venezuela, um, in different capacities. I mean, there's even one cable where a US, the, at that time, I think it was the, the sort of temporary acting US ambassador is meeting with then Ethiopian Prime Minister Mela Sinawi, talking about how they're working to sanction Eritrea, and then going on to say later in the cable how Zanawi shouldn't worry at all about his next shipment of Black Hawk helicopters for the Ethiopian military, because the, at that time, there are people who are saying, don't send them this military equipment because they're quote unquote human rights violators. And he's like, oh, don't worry about the Leahy Amendment and the Leahy vetting, which is allegedly supposed to do with human rights and U.S. arms sales, uh, you know, fake, but whatever. He says, don't worry about the Leahy vetting for exactly that reason, because there are ways around that, essentially. So in the same thing where they're telling the world publicly, well, we're going to sanction Eritrea because they're the world's worst human rights violators. They're telling Ethiopia, who they're admitting in their own documents are doing what they're accused of, of doing, Ethiopia. They're saying, don't worry about it, though. We're going to send you helicopters. So you can see it pretty clearly. And I think that that is, you know, a major fear of the United States, that the growth of unity in the Horn of Africa with Eritrea at the center of it means something very different uh, than just generalized conversation about regional unity. It means that there's going to be a, a thought process and a a process and a, and, a, and, a, and a structure to how this goes about, where the first thing people are going to be thinking of is not going to be, you know, how to do the U.S. bidding in the region, and that could start to, you know, really shift the ground under, you know, what is really the U.S. hegemony and what is, you know, one of the most geopolitically strategic areas. So, yeah, I think that it, it's it's very few people know much about Eritrea. It's so demonized. Similar the the fact that it's called the North Korea of Africa even tells you something. <laughs> similar to how North Korea is aggressively demonized. No one knows anything about it. You can say whatever you want to say, but you can see that their biggest crime really is that they're independent. Don't let people push them around and that they're willing to buck the consensus of U.S. hegemony in the, the Asian region. And so they must be targeted, isolated and demonized.
demonized. And I think they fear Eritrea. Um, you know, the, the, it's the fear of a good example that they will, especially because of the peace dividend that will come with peace with Ethiopia, become something that I think a lot of people on the continent will start to look towards and say, well, okay, like maybe we can take some things from um, how they're doing things, become a little bit more independent, work more regionally and pan-Africanly, uh, not be as tied to these sort of broader networks of international trade, at least not in the same disadvantageous way. Uh, and as you can see, you know, as those dominoes start to fall, the more and more problematic that comes for, uh, becomes for imperialist powers. You know, we really appreciate both of you guys coming on and helping us uh, pick apart and understand, of, of course, a, a complex issue that is I really knew nothing about. And, and obviously, most people don't. It, you know, it rarely covered in the media. And when it is, it's it's one sided. And, you know, you guys only just haven't been covering this by talking to very important people. But you both went yourselves at at great risk to yourself to get this story. And I really hope everyone who is interested in this interview checks out all of your work on Breakthrough News on this topic to get an even deeper understanding. And so just as a closing question, um, I wanted to pose this to to you, Eugene. Um, you know, I think that it's important for me, and, and I think others should feel this way too, that we should really care about Africa and Africa's future um, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, one of them is I think people forget that like Africa is part of everyone's story. Africa is the, the birthplace of humanity, of human beings. And its its historical legacy is a place where human beings uh, first walked the earth and then migrated to all of the rest of the world. And then for many thousands of years after that, being pioneers in so many things that we rely on today, math and science, you know, places 2000 years ago in Africa that were destinations for scholars from all over the world. And just the really important role it played for us as a species um, and, and for civilization. And today, Africa is, is seen, in particular in the United States, as a place that is just destined for war. These sectarian conflicts are normal. That's just what it's like there. There's, it's a place destined for disaster. It's a place destined for famine and starvation and things like that. But um, you, that obviously is a, is a, a t big turn that Africa's history took um, and is recovering from. But there's a different a different future that is possible. And I think if we can um, understand these issues and understand the role that imperialist powers play on keeping Africa in this uh, the state that it, it doesn't belong in, there is a, a, a potential other future that is emerging. And I wanted you to talk about what, what those possibilities are and, and what that could look like and how. You know, I think that's such a great point and it's so relevant for this. I mean, the Horn of Africa is in and of itself, the cradle of civilization. Uh, and, you know, most of the oldest human remains that are out there come from this area that we're, we've been talking about here on the show. And yes, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that there's a different future that people are fighting for. I mean, you know, Africa is the youngest continent. I, you know, I've, I've been in South Africa, I've been in Ghana, I've been in Ethiopia, I've been in Eritrea. Um, and one thing you notice in all of the countries is how young they are. I mean, I think actually the median age in Eritrea is 19. But, um, you know, when I was in Ghana, I think they told me something like 50% of the people were like, I don't know, under 18 or between 15 and 18, something like that. Um, or I don't know. There's very a lot of young people. The point being is that it's by far the youngest continent. And what you can see when you look at the the uprisings against French neocolonialism in West Africa, when you look at elements of the the popular movement in Sudan right now, when you look at what's happening with you know movements all across Southern Africa, the trade union movement in South Africa, uh, you know, combined with the the shack dwellers fighting for the right to housing, uh, you can just see 
you know, really everywhere all across the continent that people are becoming more and more fed up with the state of affairs, just the enforced poverty that they are, are, are put in. And I think that this will be a major question for the 21st century. I mean, Africa is also, of course, the center of, you know, many of the world's resources and thus plays an extremely important role in the future for all of us in terms of, uh, you know, how we're able to provide for humanity in a sustainable way that also provides some level of equity and equality where people can live in some level of harmony with one another. And I think that the question really is, and this is the question that that is in front of almost all African political movements right now is how are you going to harness the possibilities to improve the lives of the people? Now, many of the leaderships of the various countries in Africa are not going to do that and are more than happy to take their, you know, 12 pieces of silver or whatever and have their own people living in squalor. And that's why we're seeing more and more mass movements rise up. And I think it's certainly possible that as you know, the great progressive leaders of Africa have been saying for decades and decades and decades, if the masses of people, workers, peasants in Africa come together, stop dealing with these colonial borders, break the link of the chain of this imperialist dependency politics, and start to use the human and the physical materials that are there on the continent, Africa can emerge as a very powerful, self-determinating, uh, self-determining part of the world that I think can lead us into a sustainable future that goes beyond capitalism, quite frankly. And I think that's the questions on the table. You see radical movements rising all across the continent without any doubt. I mean, I, I'm so over the moon to see the Communist Party of Kenya constantly on the TV in Kenya and waging the struggle there. And, you know, I don't know if it's 100% them, but you can see what's happening in Kenya right now is a shift from the sort of ethnic tribal politics that destroyed the country for two decades now, essentially, to uh, a, a policy that's stressing class, that's stressing inequality, that's stressing unemployment, that's addressing the, the masses of people who are deeply aggrieved about the situation they've been forced to live in. So I think as we start to see these movements grow and develop, as they start to challenge the current state of affairs, which means challenging imperialism, which ultimately means challenging capitalism, I think we're seeing the possibility of a new Africa emerging, which really will be a, a key front in a new world emerging. Absolutely incredible breakdown. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on to explain all of this. Everyone listening to this has to go right now and subscribe to Breakthrough News, Dispatches with Rania Kalik, and also The Punch-Out with Eugene Perrier. Just absolutely crucial sources of information. Thank you so much, you guys, for taking the time to come on the Empire Files podcast and break it all down. Thanks so much for having us. Our pleasure. <laughs>